Okay, this is uh, the return, part two. Uh, remember that the whole point of dealing with the 12 stones I talked about is in preparation for Jesus's return. That's what a person should be paying attention to right now. So we left off last time where Jesus had cursed the fig tree and told them how he did it, not why he did it. So Jesus then arrives with his disciples into the city of Jerusalem. This time, though, he makes his way straight to the temple. He's sort of power walking as a person with a planned purpose. When he gets to the temple's outer court, he once again wreaks havoc, like he did the very first day on when he was his very first day as Messiah. He's tearing up the people and the temple in the same way that he did at the beginning of his ministry. In other words, after three years or more of his ministry, including the preparatory ministry of his cousin John, nothing has changed in the spiritual life of the people of the nation, the city of Jerusalem, the temple, and the leaders as a result of the living word being among them. Just think about that. Are you going to be one of those who's just not going to pay attention? and just keep doing business as usual, churchianity. And of course, this was not acceptable to Jesus. What a scene. Jesus of Nazareth destroying the business of religion, for he hates churchianity, as there's nothing in it that pleases him or is of his doing. Now, while he's doing this, as if to provide some musical melody and a beat to his zeal, Ironically, there's some children chanting over and over that he is the son of David and the Savior. This is Matthew 21, verse 15. It is clear Jesus is pissed. That word offends you? Too bad. He is very angry. And so are the leaders. The leaders got angry the first time Jesus did this. But this time, they have murder in their hearts. John eleven fifty three. They questioned his authority to do what he did the first time, and Jesus responded by prophetically telling them that they would crucify him the next time he did this, John 2, 18-21, which is now going to come to pass. For Jesus, on the one hand, he's very angry because of the lack of change despite all that he's done, but on the other hand, he also knew there wasn't going to be any change. Jesus knew his ministry was going to have the same result as Isaiah's. This is uh, in Matthew 13. You'll ever be hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. That's Jesus talking. After the mayhem, Jesus unleashes in the temple this second time, the leaders are more prepared to confront him. For what follows is a much longer conversation about Jesus' authority to do this than on the first occasion in which he did it. And their choice of a weapon for this combat is a game of who knows the Bible best. <laughs> Then as the limited leaders try to pin Jesus with their Bible questions, 
Jesus' responses are like humiliating slaps to the face, but slaps that are intended to wake them up from their religious slumber. For example, Jesus says things like, this is Matthew 21, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. Oh boy, tell that to some of the big name TV and YouTube guys, right? Big, big churches. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people who produce its fruit. Boy, you say that to some big church pastor here in the Houston area. Oh, boy. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom the fall on whom it falls will be crushed. Could Jesus have said anything more insulting and yet true? Jesus' words are have are having absolutely no impact. His lips are moving, weighty things are coming out of his mouth, and the leaders cannot, as being unable, hear them. I mean, they're hearing the sound. It's like they don't actually hear him. The scene is like that of a jackhammer with his pounding, 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 and the leaders are getting nothing, 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 except angrier, angrier, and angrier. And everything Jesus says to these leaders is confronting, exposing, and demeaning them in front of the people. I mean, they are leaders. They're supposed to understand this stuff. And in every way, no matter which approach the leaders take, Jesus utterly shuts them down hard. Again, this is embarrassing to these leading leaders as well as infuriating. It's almost as if in these heated exchanges, dare I say it, Jesus seems to be deliberately provoking them to kill him. It's as if Jesus has already said, isn't strong enough so far? We come to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23 begins with a scathing indictment of the spiritual leaders as Jesus rips them for who and what they actually are. There's a lot of people in big-name churches around this area that would certainly this would apply. His words for them are hypocrites, blind guides, blind fools, blind men, and ultimately snakes and a family of vipers, all of which he uses in an attempt to pierce their hard hearts to bring about repentance. He's not just calling them names. He's trying, to, he's trying to wake them up. But the most outstanding thing Jesus does in Matthew chapter 23 is that he pronounces seven, which is the number of perfection, curses, the word woe, upon the leaders and upon the nation of Israel. In short, Jesus curses the, quote, fig tree, that is, Israel, with a perfect curse. And one of the ways we know he's cursing Israel, the fig tree, is that in verse 38, he prophesies the, the utter destruction of the nation, saying that it too will end up like the fig tree, dried up and dead. Look, your house is left to you desolate. <laughs> in 70 AD, Rome fulfilled this prophecy. And the nation of Israel was no more. The people were either killed or taken captive and dispersed into other regions. 
Jerusalem, too, was completely destroyed. By the time Rome was done, Palestine was, in fact, a desolate wasteland. Imagine that at these two final prophetic statements at the end of Matthew chapter 23, a heavy silence fell upon them all, the leaders, the crowd, and the disciples. And no one daring to speak, no one knowing what to say, a very uncomfortable moment as the weight of Jesus' pronouncements presses down hard on everyone. For Jesus, there was nothing more to say. So maybe he looked at the disciples and said, let's go. And with that, he turned to leave with the disciples trailing behind him. I sort of see them single file, head down, not wanting to make eye contact with anyone. If there was any doubt, all doubt has been removed. Jesus is a dead man. He purposely picked a fight, and in this fight, he verbally beat the hell out of his opponents, exposing and shaming them as much as he could. There's now no question they're going to kill him. They're going to get even. They're going to do whatever they have to do to regain their honor and their status in the eyes of people. That's what religious people do. Again, you take some of these big guys or big churches, they'll do anything to keep their place, their power. And to do this, they must do more than just prove Jesus is false. They've got to get rid of him. True, the Jews use a variety of tactics to get the weak-willed, politically unstable politician, Pilate, to do their dirty work. And true, Pilate the politician tried to maneuver around the Jews' manipulations, even presenting them with a choice of freeing either Barabbas, Hebrew for son of the father, for Jesus of Nazareth, the son of the father. And it is also true that the Romans nailed Jesus to a cross. The whole truth is this. Every human being, all of whom are sinners, nailed Jesus to the cross. For he came to give his life as a ransom for many, making him the only way to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, the one true living God. Well, now we're at the beginning of Matthew chapter 24. And as I said, I see the disciples walking but not talking behind Jesus as he exits Jerusalem on his way to take a breather on the Mount of Olives, a peaceful place removed from the harsh things that have just happened. Then, maybe out of some desire to try to lighten the heavy mood, a couple of disciples turned to look at the city. The sun is setting in the west, and at its angle in the sky, it seems to be beautifully illuminating the city's structures. So they call Jesus' attention to this. Again, maybe hoping that this will touch his angry heart and calm him. But instead of being calm, Jesus points at the city and continues his prophetic words of doom. Do you see all these things? I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Oh. Jesus had expressed his compassionate passion at the end of of his scolding of Israel's leaders with this, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. But the time for his tenderness is past. Divine judgment is to come. Jerusalem and the nation of Israel are done, just like the victory. 
and it won't just be done for 400 years as in Egypt, nor for 70 years like in Babylon, nor for 400 years from Malachi to John the Baptist, but for some 1,900 years, nearly two millennia. As Jesus continues his prophetic words of judgment, the disciples are getting the seriousness of what is unfolding the second day of Jesus' last week. And even though a couple of them tried to lighten the weight of it, the somber mood takes over and sobering thoughts come to their minds. And in this moment, they ask the questions of all questions, the questions everyone has to which everyone wants clear answers. Tell us when this will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. The disciples have asked two questions. When, when will Jesus return and how will they know what's happening is related to his return? And Jesus answers them plainly. There's nothing in his answer that is difficult to understand. So everything Jesus says about his return is crystal clear, easy to comprehend. Jesus is not being cryptic. He's being concise. You'll hear more about that in the next episode. Let your glory fall this room. Let it go forth from here to the nation. Let your fragrance rest in this place as we gather to seek your face. Unfold your sovereign plan Raise up a chosen generation That will march through the
to see 